Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Bermuda's changed its mind about same-sex marriage. We'll discuss the first place to repeal. On Global Notes, our look at international music, James Brown had a huge global impact. We'll find out about a Brown-influenced Ethiopian funk star from the 70s. And we recall a James Brown concert from 1968, just after the assassination of MLK. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. More than two dozen countries now allow same-sex marriage. Up until last week, the number of countries with same-sex marriage has always gone up. But last week, the territory of Bermuda became the first place to change its mind about same-sex marriage and go back to domestic partnerships. We're going to talk about this now with Brooke Sapelsa, journalist and managing editor of NBC Out, the LGBTQ news section of NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Brooke Sapelsa. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about what happened in Bermuda here. Bermuda is a territory of Great Britain, Mm -hmm. and they decided to change their mind on same-sex marriage. Sure. And just nine months after legalizing it, so in May of last year, through a Supreme Court decision, Bermuda legalized same-sex marriage. And then in December, their Senate and House Assembly passed legislation by a wide margin that sought to repeal it. And that repeal became a reality just last week. So it's being swapped with domestic partnerships. So the reverse order that you typically expect gay marriage related legislation. So, you know, the LGBTQ community in Bermuda and internationally, as you might expect, was disappointed by by the decision. Now, while it's interesting that this is the first territory to go back on this, we we obviously in this country, as we went state by state, we saw that happen with California. And mm-hmm. this is, has happened before. Sure, with, with Prop 8. And similar to Prop 8, Bermuda is actually letting the, I believe it's eight couples who got married during the nine months when same-sex marriage was legal. Uh, they are letting those marriages stand, similarly to what California did after Prop 8. It let the folks in California who got married in that window of time keep their status as married couples. Now, interestingly, I was reading about cruise liners, and Bermuda mm-hmm. has a lot of boats that are licensed to Bermuda. Yes. And some of them were performing marriages on, on boats. And this has kind of been a complication in the cruise line business. Yeah, absolutely. Carnival has subsidiaries that are based in Bermuda. And it's my understanding that no matter where those ships go, if they're based in Bermuda, they no longer can perform same-sex marriages on those ships. And CNBC has some great reporting about the potential impact on the cruise industry and the broader tourism industry to Bermuda. So 
I believe Bermuda has over $430 million annually in tourism. That was CNBC's estimate. So it, it will be interesting to see how that's impacted. And Bermuda, for people who don't know, has one of the highest incomes in the world. It is mm-hmm. a very affluent place. And I imagine a lot of that has to do with the tourism industry, the licensing, the investment industry seems to do pretty well in some of these islands. You would think they would want to preserve their interconnectedness and, and with places that think same-sex marriage is a good thing. Exactly. And, you know, I was reading an interesting statistic that was quoted by the head of the National LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce, which found that LGBTQ Americans have, I think, double the rate of passports that non-LGBTQ Americans have. So LGBTQ Americans could present an outsized impact on, on tourism. What are the chances that Bermuda goes back and changes its mind again uh, as a place that's currently affiliated with the EU, but Great Britain is Mm -hmm. kind of getting out? I don't know what impact the European Court of Human Rights or other institutions would have, but there's got to be some challenge avenue if they want to pursue it. I'm not sure. I know that the prime minister of the UK has come out expressing disappointment in Bermuda's decision, but also, you know, mentioned that the the territory has a right to pass this legislation. It was passed by its House and Assembly. So it's hard to say what could happen in the future, but this certainly is a reminder that LGBTQ rights do not necessarily have to happen in a linear fashion. I think that was the assumption from many people in the U.S. and abroad. You know, we've seen LGBTQ rights be expanded um, in a linear way over the past decade or so. And, you know, over the past, I would say maybe a year or two, it's become a realization that that's not necessarily the case. The path to LGBTQ equality could be could be circuitous. We could, you know, loop back and loop forward again. I'm talking with Brooke Sapelsa, a journalist and managing editor of NBC Out, the LGBTQ news section of NBC News. And we've been talking about uh, the territory of Bermuda, the first place to change its mind about same-sex marriage and go back to domestic partnerships. Um, That sounds pretty good compared to what's going on in Indonesia right now, mm-hmm. where there is a move to outlaw gay sex and extramarital sex, and they're going to be voting on legislation in the parliament tomorrow. This also affects many more people. Bermuda is a place of 60,000 people. Indonesia is a place of 260 million people. It is. And, you know, we have been seeing headlines out of Indonesia shocking headlines over the past, at least the past year and a half. You know, it was a few months ago considering a ban on LGBTQ-related TV content. Just, I think, two weeks ago, um, had a raid and on transgender women and publicly shamed them by cutting their hair and making them dress like men and taking photos of them. They publicly caned two men for gay sex in the Banda Aceh province, and they performed multiple raids on on gay spas and gay clubs and rounded up dozens, and in one case, more than 100 men. So we've been seeing a lot of headlines, um, really troubling headlines out of Indonesia. And this, you know, I have to say this um, latest development with them considering t- outlawing uh, gay sex did not surprise me at all based on what we've been seeing coming out of Indonesia in the past 
I'd say, um, at least a year and a half. Now, I was reading the quotes of the leading member of the largest political party, and he seemed to think that this legislation was going to protect LGBTQ people from uh, more conservative elements that want full criminalization because apparently the law allows the prosecution of uh, sex outside marriage and homosexual sex, but only if one of the sexual partners or their family members report the crime to the police. Uh, <laughs> should, should anybody feel protected by that? I, I absolutely not. I, you know, we're we're going to criminalize um, same-sex sexual activity, but in some way, that's you know, we're actually protecting you by doing that is is ridiculous. And LGBTQ advocates within the country and um, international advocates have, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a laughable, um, in my opinion. A, a, a laughable comment. It seems like a lot of Indonesia's politics come down to uh, secularists versus religious uh, mm-hmm. political parties, and that's um, that's a factor here. The, the the president right now is kind of a leading secularist. He's going to run in a re-election in a year or so, and uh, uh, it's going to be this kind of thing that um, mobilizes people in the political opposition. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that um, the secular versus religious um, conservatives is something that's unique to Indonesia. You know, I, I certainly think that we see, um, you know, elements of that in the U.S. as well. But um, it does seem like there this particular measure that was that's being voted on tomorrow was um, being pushed by religious conservatives. So. You know, Indonesia, though, is not unique to having religious conservatives, you know, whatever their religion be, fight against LGBTQ progress. I've been reading some uh, statistics and um, uh, polls about what's happening in Indonesia. And mm-hmm. I was reading an in, um, uh, one that was done in Indonesia by an Indonesian university. And um, only about 60% of the respondents really knew what LGBT was. Uh, the majority, 87%, felt that LGBT people were a threat. Uh, 79% felt uncomfortable having an LGBT person as their neighbor. Uh, but 46% said they could accept it if an LGBT member is gay in their family. Um, th- what do you think has been going on in, in the populace there? I mean, you know, when your government is proposing outlawing gay sex is, you know, caning people in public squares, is publicly shaming transgender people, you know, that has an impact on on the public. So, you know, they are, I imagine, not seeing much uh, positive representation of the LGBTQ community. And they are getting fed a lot of anti-LGBTQ propaganda from their government. And, you know, perhaps their religious leaders who seem to be, you know, religious leaders seem to be pushing, um, you know, these anti-LGBTQ measures in the country. So that's not that surprising. Uh I wanted to ask you how this kind of contrasts with where our heads are. You know, this seems so far away from where most people's heads in this country are at on this issue. And we're looking at the Olympics these days, and it looks really great to see uh, out athletes 
talking about uh, their sexuality, being openly gay. Uh, Adam Rippon is the U.S. skater who just won the bronze medal and has been, you know, kind of chatting up uh, Vice President Mike Pence on the issue. There's a Canadian figure skater, Eric Radford, who just won the gold. Um, and it seems really nice to have these people in this international venue uh, being themselves. Yeah, and it's, you know, the contrast is is so pronounced when you have, you know, I, I think it's more than 10 countries in the world um, punish homosexuality by death. And then you have countries where, you know, they are embracing openly gay Olympic athletes and openly gay Olympic athletes have the ability to criticize the LG stances on LGBTQ issues of the vice president. Um, you know, and there have been countries that have had openly gay prime ministers. So the um, the contrast is is quite drastic. Um, but you know, while part of the world is adva is advancing when it comes to LGBTQ rights, I mean, Australia just passed same sex marriage, um, and it's now legal in the, in the country as of as of January. We have. You know, it's been preceded by two dozen countries that have legalized same-sex marriage. So it's, you know, there's really such a drastic difference. And, um, you know, as someone who lives in the U.S., in New York City, arguably one of the most um, LGBTQ-inclusive places in the country, you know, my heart really goes out out to people that are living in places like Indonesia, um, places like Malaysia that just um, one of their new one of their popular newspapers just posted a spot a gay checklist in its newspaper. We just posted something on that on uh, NBC out. Um, your heart really goes out to people that are living in a place that is, you know, more than 100 years behind on on LGBTQ equality. Brooke Sapelsa is a journalist and managing editor at NBC Out, the LGBTQ news section of NBC News. And um, that's a great thing, uh, NBC doing NBC Out. Uh, when did that start? So we launched in June of 2016, and we have the distinction of being the first legacy um, media company to launch an LGBTQ um, digital destination. So, and it, it's been great. We are, you know, we're... We surpassed a year and a half, and the company as a whole has really embraced um, NBC Out. So that so that's been great, and we've been covering you know everything from politics to pop culture, and you know our content is you know we we hope that we've cultivated a great LGBTQ audience, but to see our content also be embraced by the broader NBC News family has been great as well. So. I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish. Well, congratulations on the effort. I was impressed by the page. And Brooke Sapelsa is a journalist and managing editor at NBC Out, the LGBTQ news section at NBC News. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we are going to have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll talk about an Ethiopian funk star from the 70s who was deeply influenced by James Brown. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. In the mid-70s, Ethiopian funk musician Ayalu Mesfin had it going on, and his music is just getting its first wide release outside of Ethiopia in a new vinyl record. It's called Hasabe, My Worries, and we're going to take a listen to a little bit of it right now. That's Ayalu Mesfin, the title track from Hasabe, My Worries. It's a re-release of his work in the mid-70s. It's on Now Again Records. Now Again specializes in the convergence of funk, soul, psychedelic music, and sometimes jazz from 1968 to today. And Eothen Alpat is the founder of Now Again Records. Thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to be here talking about such an incredible array of music. I really got lost playing around on your website. You've got a, a fantastic array of music, and we're going we're to dabble in it. Um, and first, I wanted to ask you about uh, Ayalu Mesfin. His story is a really interesting one. He lives in the United States now, and he only recorded for a short amount of time. Yeah, he uh, his golden age, as it were, was in Ethiopia approximately between 1974 and 1978. After that point, he did record some, uh, but most of it was unreleased and he housed on reel-to-reels. Some of it came out on cassette. He had the foresight, however, of maintaining all of his reel-to-reels, and when he was forced to leave Ethiopia, he brought all of his reel-to-reels with him to America, and when he finally settled in Denver... He had this amazing treasure trove of music that was just waiting for the right person to uh, discover. And then that was you? How did you come to be that person? Well, you know, it was it was one of those like foreordained moments that I realized when I was uh, standing with him in his in his home in Denver with his family and he remarked that I looked like his late son who'd passed away. I I heard his music because I was buying Ethiopian 45s and I was intrigued because I was buying the 45s at random. And every time I came across one by him, it had a very unique sound, which bridged Ethiopian folkloric music, psychedelic rock, funk, soul, a bit of jazz. And he had a very unique voice. And it was obvious that there was more to his catalog that needed to be discovered. But it wasn't until a hip-hop producer that I worked at uh, Stones Throw Records with, Ono, uh, sampled a series of Ethiopian records that I had for a beat CD, which we turned into an album that he called Ethiopium. Now, a friend of mine heard one of the tracks that he made and said, this would be perfect in this Mountain Dew commercial that I'm making for this ad agency <laughs> that I'm the music director of. Do you think you could clear this for me? And I said, well, you know, it's this Ethiopian sample. But so far as I can tell, rights management-wise, if I find the artist, I can clear it directly through him. So let me see if I can find him. And a friend of mine, Danny McConnon, who uh, leads the Debo Band, a great uh, modern Ethio groove ensemble based on the East Coast, happened to be friends with Ayalu through his father, and he introduced me, and I literally cold-called, got his wife on the phone, and made my pitch. I started there, and about eight years later, he finally invited me into his home in Denver, and I went there with Cameron Schaefer from Vinyl Me Please, the subscription service that's based in Denver. 
with you know open ears and an open mind, and we sat down and met with Ayelu and listened to all of his music. And by the end of that meeting, it was obvious that Ayelu was ready to trust me with his recorded life's work. That's an amazing story. Uh, so it took you almost 10 years just to get this far with the record. Yeah, I mean, I would go to Denver with Ono's brother, Madlib. He's a hip-hop producer that I'm partners with. And I would go to Denver to do shows, and I'd call um, Ayelu's wife, Helen, and I'd say, hey, you know, we're doing a show this Saturday. Like, you know, let's come. She'd be like, oh, yeah, of course. We have church, so you'll have to come very early in the morning. Meanwhile, we're leaving the club at 4, you know. And I was like, that's <laughs> not going to work. But, oh, yeah, just stay up and then show up, you know, like smelling like wine or something. That was not going to be a good look. I could already tell. I was a teetotaler, it turns out, so I was wise to not just show up <laughs> disheveled after running an event with Madlib. But uh, when we did show up there, it was it was very meaningful, and it was uh, it was very uh, how do I put this? It was obvious that Ayelu hadn't thought about this music in the same way that we'd thought about it, because the first questions we were asking him was about James Brown and Jimi Hendrix and Malatu et Stake. And meanwhile, he was talking about the entire lineage of his recorded career, much of which was done in secret, you know, up until the point he had to leave Ethiopia, and some of which, you know, has been lost to time. Well, let's hear another cut from Ayelu Mesfin in a new vinyl record. It's called Hasabe, and here is another song from Ayelu. Ayelu Mesfin from his new album, Hasabe, My Worries, released by Now Again Records here last month. And I'm speaking with Eothin Alpat from Now Again Records. Uh, so one of the interesting uh, things here is that um, Ayelu has done a few gigs. He's gone out and played a couple times now. Uh, he's an older guy, but it sounds like he's still got a little um, urge to perform out there. Oh, absolutely. When we sat down, uh, Cameron Schaefer and I, at his house, and he had this very rare 7-inch, the 7-inch that Ono had sampled for that one track that we put in the Mountain Dew commercial, which started the whole ball rolling. When he played that, he started singing along with it, and it was one of those moments that I was happy to have an iPhone. Normally, I like to keep it in my pocket, but it was so special I had to record it because he was singing along with the record, and he sounded like the record. And he's a little bit younger than his peers, like Alamayu Eshete and Mahmoud Ahmed, Talahun Gesese. Ayalu must be about 60-something now, and he's very sprite. So he's been performing, but he's not performed this music. And with the re-release that we did with Vinyl Me Please, and by the way, the only way that you can get the music is on vinyl if you're not streaming it. That's pretty cool. I, I'm, I think I'm, so. I'm all about the vinyl revival. This is awesome. Yeah, me too. And Vinyl Me Please is amazing because they uh, have a subscription service and they deliver music to subscribers. So with this Ayalu Mesfin record, they made it their record of the month and they're delivering it to thousands of people that would never even know of 70s Ethiopian music, let alone Ayalu Mesfin. 
and they helped get these shows together. We're doing three shows with Ayalu and the Debo Band, and the first one's kicking off in Denver with Madlib. That's super cool. Now, how do you fit him into the rest of your catalog? And you've got so many different um, kinds of music, but lots of it is 70s funk that people never heard from Africa, and this sounds like um, a lot of it. Well, I look at it this way. I came into all this stuff through hip-hop, so at first I was looking at music from this era, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, up until the early 80s, as source material for hip-hop producers, hip-hop DJs. And then I started realizing that what I really loved was the rhythmic revolution that people like James Brown and Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix all honed in the 1960s, right? So once I started realizing where that went all around the world, I started realizing that there was tremendous similarities with all of these musicians because that music exploded outwards at the same time that the influence was coming inwards from all of these different places. So James Brown, for instance, he toured all over Africa. Now, I don't think he toured Ethiopia, but it's obvious that Ayalu Mesfin was listening to James Brown. So if I started my reissue career with the Cashmere Stage Band and Carlene and the Groovers, two independent funk ensembles from America that were influenced by James Brown, and now I'm issuing Ayalu Mesfin's music, and it too is influenced by James Brown, well, that's already a starting point that a person who's been listening to the, my reissues for the past 16 years can sink their teeth into and, you know, of course, open their ears to. It's funny, James Brown, um, his impact was so much more than we ever heard back for so many years. But now we get to hear, like, his true impact out there in the world. Oh, I mean, and, and it's not the caricature that began with the Blues Brothers and, you know, well, like reached its lowest point, you know, sometime in the late 90s. This is like James Brown at his most fiery when truly the world over had to react to him in the same way that they had to react to the Beatles. And that's, you know, all different types of ethnicities and ages all had to acknowledge the power of James Brown and his bands. I mean, his bands, it's very important because his bands were as important as he was. I'm talking with Eothin Alpat from Now Again Records. One of the reissues that you did, the music from Zambia is really <laughs> is really terrific. We've got a cut here from Welcome to Zam Rock Volume 1, and you did two. Why don't we just listen to a bit of Chrissy Zebi Tembo? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Born Black by Chrissy Zebi Tembo from Welcome to Zamrock Volume 1, a compilation released in 2017 on Now Again Records. Ethan, uh, tell us something about these compilations and how you put those together. Well, the Zambian uh, compilations were all centered around this style of music that contemporaneously by Zambians was termed Zamrock. And this was music that was made um, after Zambia's uh, throwing off the British colonial yoke under its first uh, president, Kenneth Kaunda, and really reached its peak in like the early to late 1970s. 
And it was a tremendous moment for Zambian musicians who took to rock music and a bit of funk, but mostly rock, more than any other um, African country that I can think of at the time, with the exception of maybe Nigeria. And they took this uh, rock music, largely influenced by American and, and European bands, and they made it uniquely Zambian. So you hear Chrissy Zebitembo in this instance, although he's singing in English, he's singing a song called Born Black, and he's asking you know, some very pertinent questions for a recently liberated country that was experiencing tremendous inflation and uh, myriad problems uh, from uh, child starvation to the devaluation of its currency. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's telling to me. And you, when you listen to the other music he made with his Ngozi family band and Paul Ngozi, the leader, you'll hear them singing in the native languages of Zambia and using uh, native Zambian rhythms and mixing it with rock music. And it became this really thrilling, unique thing. I really wanted to tell the story of the entire scene. And that's what those two books and the albums that accompany them hoped to do. Why do you think, through the oddities of distribution, we all got to hear a lot of Fela in the 70s or 80s, and, and, but we never got to hear Zamrock? Well, you know, I actually thought about that because Fela, of course, was a big deal on the African continent as well as um, outside in the African diaspora and then, of course, from there beyond. I started looking into the you know, population um, numbers in a country like Zambia and a country like Nigeria and at Zamrock's height, which would uh, probably be Fela's height too, just Lagos alone had a larger population than the entirety of Zambia. So the idea of a Zambian record industry existing for Zambian musicians that was pressing and releasing music for Zambians in Zambia, the chances of that spreading a little farther than, let's just say, Rhodesia or Botswana or Malawi, very slim. But the chances of a musician from Lagos, an oil-rich um, you know, part of Nigeria being able to spread his music further, well, that was a little bit more obvious. We've got some music from a compilation from Nigeria that you put together, Wake Up You, The Rise and Fall of Nigerian Rock, 1972 to 1977, Volume 1, and um, here's a cut called Never Too Late by the Apostles. That's uh, never too late by the apostles. Just the the org, worth it for just for the organ itself. There, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> terrific. Yeah, you're right. Like, and it's funny that you were talking about Fela um, in context to the Zamrock scene because he was an influence there, and of course in uh, Ethiopia too. But in um, Nigeria, Fela's music, and we make the argument in the Wake Up You books. Uh, came to prominence largely in part of the Nigerian rock movement that happened after the end of the Biafran Civil War. And then his music eclipsed it and led to that music's demise. Hmm. This music sounds uh, so fresh today, whereas a lot of music from the 70s or 80s or 90s does not sound fresh. Uh, why is that? 
I hear you, man. And like, I think that when you hear like on that Apostles track, you know, you hear that drum break that starts the beginning of the song and it's obvious that it's like a funk rock drum pattern, right? But it's just paid, played in a totally different way. It's not like any of like the, the classic breaks and beats that kind of inform the hip hop generation. It's a different thing. It's also not the kind of Afrobeat groove that Fela was doing. This is a very unique sound. And I think that you can transpose that to all of the music that we're listening to. The Chrissy Zebby Tembo, right? That's kind of like hard rock, proto-punk, but it has this really driving, interesting beat that you can't really describe and you can't put in context of the era in which it was recorded. Or Ayalu Mesfin with that fuzz guitar leading off that Hasabe track. That was supposed to be a saxophone, and in most of Ethiopian music at the time, it would have been. And there was Ayalu Mesfin deciding that he would transpose the saxophone to a fuzz guitar because he and his guitarist were into Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there's something about the... Um you know, rhythm being human, it sounds like somebody playing the drums. It does not sound like a drum machine or something. And the guitarists sound like it is a real improvisational moment. It doesn't sound like a practiced moment. Oh, absolutely. I think that the majority of this music was made like, uh, you know, see to your pants, fly into the studio, fly out. I mean, in Ethiopia, they were recording at the at the radio stations. In Zambia, they were recording wherever they could. They were recording at the mine studios that were used to produce television advertisements. You know what I mean? Like, these were folks that got it together and recorded a tremendous amount of music in a very short amount of time, took advantage of the window and the opportunities that were open and afforded to them, and created these moments that seem very human because they were i mean and they're very emotional that's the one thing that i want to say all this music that we're listening to super emotional you hear it in the way chrissy zebby tembo sings that song i mean and most people in america are going to understand everything he's saying the heartbreak is very real and you know he might have only got one take to do it Let's uh, swing over to Zimbabwe for a second. And uh, there was a group called Wells Fargo, which is, I, I was trying to figure out the name of the band <laughs> to name itself after a kind of well-known company. Who, who were they? Wells Fargo was a band that actually named themselves after a comic book that the band leader, Eba Chitambo and drummer, had found, and he thought that it made sense because, you know, the comic book was all about the Wild West in America, and he kind of saw his band as a bunch of renegade outlaw types. And although it isn't able to be easily discerned by first listening to their music, it was quite revolutionary. This was music that was used as, like, the theme for the, the guerrilla insurgency that was being led by black Zimbabweans against the minority-led uh, Rhodesian government. And uh, their title song, A Watch Out, was literally what uh, many people would, would would sing as they were going into to fight in these skirmishes and, you know, all-out all battles. But Wells Fargo also packed out, you know, agricultural fairs, and they played clubs, and they played for white Rhodesians and black Rhodesians and brown Rhodesians, and they just believed in unity through music. And um, Matthew Schechmeister, who is the partner that I did all the uh, research into Zimbabwe with and who catalyzed the whole thing by coming to me one day and saying, I know you know Zambian rock, but did you know Zimbabwean rock? And I didn't. He made a tremendous uh, attempt to explain Wells Fargo's significance in the Zimbabwean sense, and I think did a great job in the book that we put out. Here is a song by Wells Fargo, Bump Bump Baby. <laughs> 
That's Bump Bump Baby by Wells Fargo from the anthology album Watch Out. We are talking with Eothin Alpat from Now Again Records about some of the music they've been putting out. Um, what do you consider yourself? I'm, I'm saying you're Now Again Records and you're referring to the research and the books and the everything. You're kind of a musical anthropologist or something? You know, uh, part of me wishes that I was, you know, and, and and part of me believes that I am. I mean, ultimately, I look at myself as just a, a record guy. I mean, I make records, I make new records, and I got into the music industry because I wanted to put out new records. And I put out a lot of records on people that I believe are some of the greatest, you know, living or recently deceased uh, members of the hip-hop generation, Madlib, who, of course, is still my partner, Jay Dilla, who is no longer with us, MF Doom, one of the greatest vocalists. And I love doing that, and I still do that. But a big part of my passion for that music and the reason I was able to even meet those people is because I try my best to sincerely understand music from the past and how it informed the music that we're making right now. And so when I can find a human thread that takes one story from one side of the world and brings it to another, and it can lead to an emotional moment with either one person or a bunch, well, you know, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find. That's what I'm homing in on. And uh, that's what all this music represents to me. It's just one more conversation in a, in a much bigger discussion. Well, thanks for joining us, Eothin Alipat, and I urge people to go to the Now Again website and thrash around for hours like I did. <laughs> it it, uh, it sucks you in. There's a lot of music there. There's a lot of information and photographs that uh, draw you into everything we've been talking about. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate us. the opportunity. This was great. And, and just hearing that music again and talking about it in this context has been really fun. Thanks a lot, Eothin. Thank you. talking about the global impact of James Brown there. After the break, we're going to hear a BBC piece on a landmark James Brown concert in 1968. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Big storm is coming. The thunder and lightning. You better hold on. Watch out. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we heard a little bit about James Brown and how he inspired a generation of African musicians from Ethiopia to Zambia. In April of 1968, just 24 hours after Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered, the iconic soul singer held a landmark concert at Boston Garden. Mike Lanchin of the BBC program Witness caught up with the people who were there. It's April 5th, 1968, and cities across America have been plunged into chaos and violence by the assassination of Martin Luther King. Here in Washington, flags are flying at half-mast. Black smoke is curling upwards from burning buildings on 7th Street. It's on a small scale at the moment and in a limited area, not far from Capitol Hill. But there is looting and burning and a certain amount of assault. It's far from being a major riot, but it's not yet dark. Stokely Carmichael, the radical Negro leader, has called Dr. King's killing an act of war against blacks by white America, and he has called for retaliation on the streets. 
But inside Boston's main concert hall, there's a very different atmosphere. When he came onto the stage, I felt the energy coming from James Brown. You know, you, you, that's your, your mentor right there. You know, he's going he, to tell us that everything is going to be just fine. That he wanted us to go home peacefully. He didn't want no rioting, no looting. You know, we're here to enjoy the concert, and we're going to just have a good time. To me, <laughs> when the music starts, that's where my mind is. My mind is on doing my job. We play the music. You know, we're not we're not sitting there worried whether somebody's going to throw something or something else is going to happen. When Jane Brown is on stage, you don't have time to watch anybody else but him. Soul singer James Brown was a legendary performer and his live show at Boston's main concert hall that night was sure to be a sellout. But the city authorities were worried. Coming so soon after the assassination of Martin Luther King, they feared that a large concentration of young blacks downtown could be a recipe for disaster. Drummer John Jabbo Starks was driving into the city on the afternoon of the concert with the rest of the band. I'm headed to Boston, and I'm headed, I'm thinking, I hope nothing happens while we're on our way, or when we get there, I hope nothing happens. But you could see the streets were almost clean, and you knew by the silence that something was not right. But you just don't see a city like Boston that quiet. It may have been quiet in the city centre where the venue was, but in other areas of Boston, there'd already been trouble. The tension really arrived on the local street of Blue Hill Avenue because it was a lot of storefront, a lot of um, businesses in that area, and it were occupied by people of uh, Irish or Italian descent. 17-year-old Al Davis lived in a mixed neighbourhood of Boston. A big James Brown fan, he already had a ticket for the concert that night. But earlier in the day, he'd been out onto the streets close to his home to see what was happening. A lot of looting, a lot of um, fighting, stores being burned, cars being turned over people getting getting beat up, people running, with rocks being thrown, police after folks. The, you know, I think my first time experiencing um, the riding gear, um, first time seeing that, that was pretty intense alone, just seeing that kind of uniform. And where were you? I stood way back because he didn't want to be in the front because it was like a stampede. People would turn around and start running, especially if the police started approaching for you. Meanwhile, at the venue, the band was waiting for the go-ahead. <laughs> Everybody... Within the group, you know, you had your little radios and stuff. You heard about the burning and the looting and all of the things that was going on around the country. You heard that. The conversation was, hey, man, you guess we're going to make this gig? Say, well, we'll have to wait and see. And then a lot of guys say, well, i tell you what. If we're not going to play this gig, we need to get away from here. So the hours ticked by and the band and fans like Al Davis waited for news. James Brown and city officials had been in talks. The city had made him an offer. Go ahead with the concert to a limited audience, but allow it to be broadcast live on Boston Public TV. That would mean Brown losing money from ticket sales, but people would stay home to watch, 
and hopefully stay off the streets. Reluctantly, perhaps, Brown agreed. Al and his friends headed for the Boston Gardens. Going by, there was police guards that you walked through the ticket area. There was a lot of guys in riot gear. But that's okay. We went through, went into the garden area. And then once you was inside, things were good. It was just, you know, you felt okay. You felt at home. And then the great man himself appeared on stage. When the first song came on, he, uh, James Brown, you know, as he normally does, he counts off his band. And the tune wasn't laid back. It was, had a lot of energy to it. And it just took people off, took them into another direction, into the show. They, they forgot about what was happening on the outside. Do your running but do you know what if I remember correctly, I think he had on a kind of a jumpsuit kind of thing he was wearing. I, I can see the brown and gray. It was pretty, you know, tight pants, and I know one time he used to have his hair straight a lot, but I think this time he had an afro, because he wanted to put that message out there, say it loud, we're we're black and we're proud. It was a small but enthusiastic audience, and the concert seemed to be a success. But close to the end, some people started climbing onto the stage, and it looked like things could get out of hand. He was talking to us, and he was telling people to go home peacefully and so forth. But what is, he also mentioned that this program is also going to be on television. And, it, and then folks say, whoa, on television? We haven't been on television before. So that's when you see the increase of the crowd coming up on stage. And so James let that go for a little bit. And then finally, you see the police pushing people off the stage. And that's when Mr. Brown stopped the music and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold it, let's stop. He said something like, okay, let me finish my show. You came to do this. Let's not do anything to disrupt what's going on. I can understand the feeling, but you're black people. You're proud. You're supposed to be proud of who you are. So then you act that way. The only time that I was afraid is the day after we left Boston. Then I thought about it that, you know, what could have happened. And then you get a little nervous about it. You say, wow. Try me. The concert did end peacefully, and in fact, across the whole of the Boston area, there was little trouble reported that night. But had James Brown actually saved Boston? Al Davis and drummer Jabbo Starks certainly like to think so. It's setting an example to other states, you know, where they were having some heavy riding, like in, I think, in D.C. and in Detroit. It sent the message that uh, we don't need to do this. I, I was proud of what we had done, yeah. You know, you couldn't help but be proud. You were part of the history that was made. And uh, it's a great feeling to know that you were part of something that was positive. James Brown died on Christmas Day 2006. He's ranked seventh in Rolling Stone magazine's 100 Greatest Artists. Jabbo Starks still plays drums in a band in Florida at the age of 74. And Al Davis occasionally presents jazz shows on Boston Public Radio. That was the BBC's Mike Lanchin for the BBC program Witness. And here is a little James Brown from April of 1968, that very concert, Cold Sweat. 
Tomorrow on Worldview, there won't be any Worldview. There won't be any James Brown. There will be Governor Rauner bringing his own unique brand of funk to the state budget address. And uh, we hope you enjoy it. Tony Sarabia will be here, as will uh, our political crew, and they'll have some analysis of the state budget address tomorrow at this time. Uh, Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Anna Waters and Galia Abdullah. Thanks to Mike, Daniel, Mike Gilmore and Daniel Musisi for music curation. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.